I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. How are you doing, Jonathan? You know, I should say I'm all right. We're going to be getting into lots of sort of heavy stuff. But the truth is, my mind is completely in the 16th century and maybe early 17th century um, because I'm just immersed in planet Tudor at the moment. Tudor history is all I can really think about morning, noon and night. Well, I'm going to confess before we kind of dive into this that I'm a Plantagenet gal myself. More yeah, the no, Henry, you're big in this period. More the you? Henry the Fifth, you know. I, I call him Prince Hal. He's more <laughs> that. That's my guy. But you know, I'm fine to dive into the Tudors with you if you want. It's always a well, funny. I, you're always surprised that non-Britons are obsessed with the Tudors. It's very funny. I am. I, I can't believe. It. No, I'm in that mode. For I have an excuse because my younger son is doing A level history. Mm-hmm. Um, he has his big uh, exams right now in the summer exams. And the very first one is Tudor history. And so, you know, it becomes a family project testing uh, him using those little index cards. So if you want to talk for an hour about <laughs> Henry Seventh, if we want to hear about the Earl of uh, of Throckmorton, I'm good on that. We can uh, have Duke him on, actually. You, you don't do officials, so I don't know if we could do that. <laughs> no, so we don't do that. Um, but no, I could talk about any of that, but that has been where my head has been. And in fact, I think it's true to say that as you and I speak now, he is mid-exam. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, you know, so I'm So we're sending him the good vibes, the good vibes. Yeah, but it's so I sweet of you so. to help with all the, the, the preparation. I don't know if every parent does that. It's really lovely, I think. Um, you know, well, he's been doing all the studying. That's all him. This is just the sort of testing process, pacing up and down, you know, firing questions. Uh, this is that process. Let's hope it So who's your favourite tutor? Help. Well, I, you know, partly because I always like somebody who's, you know, I, it's like people who go for the early albums, you know, early Beatles, sort of obscure uh, references. So I am quite into Henry Seventh. I think Henry Seventh is interesting. All the airtime goes on Henry Eighth and Elizabeth I. I find Henry the seventh interesting role of a founder um wasn't supposed to be the king all kinds of stuff about him yeah see you this is you on your strongest suit again we can can Um, do it let's forget the jewish podcast let's just do the history podcast Tudor podcast would be big that would be big somebody ought to do that you know what jewish podcast could you could you think of that for a minute that that is niche (laughs) Uh, anyway we have bigger stuff to talk about than the tudors um because lots has been going on in the world. Um, you know, last uh, time you and I spoke, we there was a very obvious Jewish dimension to this horrible mass shooting in Buffalo, mm-hmm. New York, uh, because the alleged killer, the suspect, um, had posted online a so-called manifesto, a hate-filled screed, 29 pages of which were all about the Jews and Jews being behind replacement theory. As it stands, this absolutely hideous school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 schoolchildren and two adults, their teachers, were shot dead in a massacre, a mass shooting, uh, doesn't have an obvious, you know, similarly obvious motivation or, 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 or but therefore, you know, anti-Semitic uh, purpose behind it. Nevertheless, um, I think it's something we should talk about Partly just because, um, well, you know, there's a question in there, which I'm very interested to hear from you about what what Israel does with guns and, and gun control. Because from my point of view, I've just been watching this thing. And, I, you know, as you know, I was a correspondent in, in America for several years. And 
covered, you know, a fair share of these horrible events. And there's just something so kind of ritual about them where as soon as they've happened, Republicans and Democrats broadly go into their corners, red corner and the blue corner, and Republicans will say, don't politicize a tragedy. You know, you can't say anything. It's just you know, the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun and all these lines. And Democrats say, what about making it as hard to buy a gun as it is to buy a bottle of beer? Should we do that, maybe? And so that, you know, an 18-year-old who cannot buy alcohol cannot buy a gun because at the moment they can. And suddenly they are accused of, you know, dancing on the graves of the victims or whatever. It's just, it sickens me to be truthful. But it also, I think, if I was living in America still, I think it would fill me with such despair because majorities want there to be change and yet nothing happens. And it was the same story after Sandy Hook and it's going to be the same story now. So I'm interested to know if other places, I know how Britain does it, uh, you know, where there are no handguns, basically they were made illegal after a terrible school shooting in the 1990s. But what the picture is in Israel. You know, it's it's interesting, Jonathan, I was uh, thinking about the fact that last week, it's, co- it's coincidence completely, there was a, a drill on a massive scale in Israel and all over the country, children practiced walking down to a bomb shelter, right, in case a rocket is launched from Hezbollah or in Lebanon or from Hamas in Gaza. And you think to yourself, you know, this is a quite a dangerous place to raise children, but we know what the reality is and we know that we have external threats and that there are malignant actors all around. But to think that you have to have a drill in which children are facing a live shooter, right? And you have these images that are just heartbreaking of, of a parent telling his little daughter, you know, this backpack can change into a, a bulletproof vest for you. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. And as you said, we both spent, I think, this similar amount of time in the United States and you look at it and, and, and you kind of find yourself dumbfounded. And you asked about Israel. I think Israel is a really interesting case because Israel is both, first of all, well-armed, uh, which we should say, but also very, very well regulated. Uh, and, and this is the point, right? So the state essentially has a very, very strict regulations. Who can have uh, uh, weapons? How? They have to have a note from the doctor that they are healthy mentally and physically. They have to go through tests. You can only have in your possession one firearm and 50 bullets, and that is it. And there is a specific, again, the specific people who can have it or not. You have to get a license. Uh, 40% of, of, of requests are denied. So you see that there is a whole sort of very, very regulated firearms uh, uh, situation here. And it also, I think, the underlining thing to say about it, obviously, is that in Israel, it's not the issue of I have a firearm because I'm distrustful of my neighbor, I distrust my neighbor, I distrust the state, and I want to protect my family. It's being the first or another line of defense when terror comes in. So that's a whole different sort of, I think, I don't know, pulse of a nation with your relation to to, to firearms in general. That particular point is interesting because it means it's about collective protection rather than individual Mm -hmm. protection. Now, if you ask me, I think that's what the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution was actually about, a well-regulated militia. Not just every individual uh, can take a kind of weapon of war, these assault Mm -hmm. rifles, just for themselves. So I think that's a really fascinating difference that it's part, in a way, almost understood that if an Israeli has a gun, it's as part of some collective national self-defense. 
if it's needed. But that point, I mean, even just that one you said, about 40% of, of applicants are denied. I mean, that is huge. Whereas the whole boast that Americans make is that you can just walk in and buy one. No background checks required. No questions asked. Go to a gun show. You may not even have to show ID. You can pay in cash. You walk out with a military-grade weapon. Um, It is really shocking. The reason why I was particularly keen for you to talk about Israel is that I think Americans, and particularly the American right, if somebody like me, and I did this when I was there in the United States, would mention the British experience of this particular event in Dunblane, Scotland, where children were killed in a similar style. I mean, really, it's not that different from what happened in Texas or Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. And immediately the entire political community, I mean, both sides, all sides, closed ranks and just said, we're banning handguns. You just can't really get them unless you are in the sort of criminal underworld and, you know, you can't get them. And there hasn't been a school shooting ever since, and that's mm-hmm. more than a quarter of a century ago. You would say that to Americans. They go, ah, yeah, okay, Europe, you know, it's different there. Or, By you, the way, you know, same Sweden. story in Australia, I think, right? Same yeah, thing. Well, the same a, story. Do yeah. You say to them, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, they'll always say, ah, yeah, it's different there, it's easy. It's, you know, you don't know what threats are like. You don't live in this kind of culture. We've talked about this on this podcast, this sort of Mars venus distinction americans are from mars europeans are from venus well guess who else is from mars israelis right there's something in common there yep. i'm t- i'm talking about from the perspective of the american right yes they felt during the war on terror they were there and so were, it was israel israel knows what it's like to deal with terror mm-hmm. israel knows what it's like to be in a tough neighborhood mm-hmm. israel knows what it's like because every uh, citizen is also a soldier If Israel and Israelis say to Americans, we're like you in all these respects, but we're really not like you when it comes to guns, we regulate them, we make sure people can't have them, we reject 40% of applicants, I wonder if a lot of those very gung-ho, pro-Israel, right-wing Republicans might listen Mm -hmm. to Israelis saying that in a way they won't listen to me or a Belgian or a Swede talking about guns. Yeah, I mean, you should just go on the site, right, to get a license. I did this this morning, not because I wanted to get a license. I was preparing for a conversation. There are so many restrictions and regulations. We should just translate that from Hebrew into English because you have to be 18. It's a law from 1949, by the way. You have to be 18. You have to submit the results of your health test. You have to have a training period. You have to have a reason. You have to have the police authorizing it. It's like, it's a very, very long list, as it should be, by the way, until you can go through this process. Uh, as you say, yeah. and again, we're I think we're a good example, quote unquote, because we do have a lot of firearms. You walk around in Israel, there are people with weapons, but you don't have this situation in which someone can actually step into a school and shoot children. It doesn't happen. But I do want to make this point because we are talking about Israel a lot. There is a problem and it's a growing concern and it's plaguing specifically the Arab community in Israel. And that's the spread of organized crime. And you see a very, very large number of illegal uh, uh, firearms and weapons, ammunition, semi-automatic guns, all coming either from, either smuggled from Lebanon uh, and Jordan or manufactured in the Palestinian territories or actually stolen from the military. And the estimation is there are tens of thousands of these. And the victims of those weapons and those cars are, are, you know, innocent uh, civilians in the Arab society. Only in 2021, 126 Arab Israelis were killed. Uh, the number doubling itself in in recent years. 
And this is obviously a problem when you see, by the way, it's trickling down in some cases into terror because you see the uh, two Arab Israelis who shot, who did the uh, terror attack in, in Hedera a few weeks ago, they had semi-automatic weapons because of this issue. But again, this is specifically, it should be dealt with and, and the Arab community is is dealing with it and so is the police, but that is a specific case in Israel yeah. that should be dealt with and should be mentioned. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, uh, and and look, other countries uh, around the world too are not sort of gun-free, and it is a problem. And But usually it's a problem in the way you've defined it, which is it could be about a sector or, or, you know, as a criminal problem, rather than it being a case that in the United States, there are 120 guns for every 100 people. As I say, I think America is an outlier. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this onion headline which they repurpose every time there's one of these school shootings, they do it again, which is, why does this keep happening? Asks country, which is the only place where this keeps happening. You know? mm. um, it's one of the tragic uh, nobody, headlines, not the funny yes, ones. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, very, it's one of those powerful ones. And they're the only place where this happens. It's true. They are such a massive outlier statistically on these kinds of uh, gun deaths. No, the other th- thought that came into my mind we mentioned him last week. I think he was our mention of the week last week. Um, the comedian, British comedian, Sasha Baron Cohen, he created this character, Colonel Eran Morad, the fictional Israeli colonel yeah. who got himself in front of a whole lot of Republican politicians, Dick Cheney and others, saying what actually was the reverse of the truth, that we in Israel train our kindergartners, two and three-year-olds, to use assault weapons. Why don't you do this in America? Mm. And instead of saying, that is hideous, get out of my office, they were like, oh, okay, maybe. (laughs) Sounds a good idea. Uh, And they even agreed to pose for what they thought was a promo for this campaign to get toddlers to wield high-velocity weapons. The point he was bringing out there was brilliant, was that when it comes to security, there's a kind of deference mm-hmm. by the Amer- a certain stripe of American conservative. They defer to Israel. They think you're the most militarized society in the world, surely. Whatever you say about guns, we'll listen to. And therefore, they were prepared to do something ridiculous and appalling. I'm sort of saying, let's have a real-life Colonel Iran Murad go to these politicians and say, yeah, I'm from this modern-day Sparta that you keep loving because it's so on the front line in the war against terrorism and so on, listen to how we handle guns. I, I just think there may be something there yeah. that Israel has, you know, we talked, we've talked before when Israel had a particular expertise to offer the world about coronavirus. Obviously, we're, you know, we'll talk about in future weeks about high tech and everything else. I wonder if Israel has a USP in particularly talking to the very group of people who will not take it from anyone else, and I'm thinking of those American conservatives in places like Texas, a mission from Israel to tell them about guns. Let's say it's still... Pro, and call it pro-life. Why not? Go crazy. Call <laughs> you it even pro-life. have the slogan, it's still simpler in this country, in Israel, to buy baby formula than it is to get a gun, not the other way around. You see, you've said you've that's the that's the slogan right there. I think it's um, we've done some good. I feel uh, between us there. I think that could be something. It's rare, but I think we did. I think we did manage it. Yeah, Um, I mean, anyway, beyond beyond awful. Um, So that's making big news around the world. But where we ended uh, or we left listeners on a bit of a cliffhanger last week with what's going on inside Israel itself. Well, you know, (laughs) I can't not think. uh, Remember that scene in History of the World, Mel Brooks's. 
fantastic film in which it's like the eve of the French Revolution and it's a destitute market and they go through the, the camera goes through the stalls and there's this vendor yelling, uh, rotten apples, rotten apples. And then the other one is yelling, I can sell rats, I'm selling rats. And the final vendor is yelling, yelling nothing, I have nothing to sell. So that is a little bit the state, maybe it's cruel, but that's a little bit the state of the uh, Israeli coalition uh, at that po- at this point. Look, we're stuck in a twilight zone, when it's clear it's clear that the coalition situation is not going to improve in any way. But the opposition has not yet succeeded to find the 61st uh, vote to dissolve parliament. Where we stopped last week, and it was this sort of drama that unfolded as we started our recording, was that the lawmaker from the left, from the Merits Party, uh, Raidari Nawizobi, said she was quitting the coalition, potentially giving the opposition its uh, uh, vote to dissolve parliament, only to be placated by Yair Lapid and budgets for the Arab community. And she took a step back from that. But look, Jonathan, I mean, we're in a situation again where you just need one uh, coalition member uh, to, to leave. Naftali Bennett has now lost his two most trusted advisors. One of them, we talked about her last week because Shimli Tamiyu was trying to make him more of a central political figure. The other is uh, Tal Gansvi from the right, who was, you know, his ally for, for 10 years and left this week. At this point, the coalition is quite helpless. It can't pass or submit any bill. It had a very popular bill about scholarships for for soldiers that uh, the United Arab List wouldn't vote for, and then they needed the Likud to not vote against it just so it would pass. It's an indication of just how dire things are. How long this will last? It can take weeks, but it's not going to last a lot more than that. Um, What decision did the Likud take on that bill? It, It decided not to vote against uh, this was after recordings came out of a member of uh, Knesset from the Likud, Miri Regev, saying we have to topple every one of the coalition's laws, even if they're uh, helping uh, soldiers, even if they're helping uh, women who were victims of sexual assault, even if, you know, all of that. They're helping the handicapped. We still need to topple every one of those laws just to topple this government. The recordings came out on our network, and that made them uh, a bit uncomfortable. And so they had to not be the obstacle for this specific bill, but still, I mean, it just it is indicative of how dire the situation is for the coalition. Yeah, and so you measure its lifespan in weeks. I was going to say if I have to bet all the money in my pockets, but why should I do that? Let's bet all the money in your pockets that uh, <laughs> that it's it's in uh, Tudor coin. Though, exactly, so <laughs> exactly. It may not be worth that much, but so go no on. No yes, beheadings. What would you say? If anyone gets it wrong, just saying, um, I would say weeks. Yes. Gosh. Okay. So we'll be. Um, braced for that. I think the um, that is partly because American politics is a bit in my head, given what we talked about before. But that notion, the, the the leaked recordings saying we'll have to vote against anything, it reminds me a little of that uh, quote attributed to Mitch McConnell in the first term of Barack Obama. What is your objective for the new congressional term? He was asked, and he said to make Barack Obama a one-term president, meaning we will deny him anything yep. that even looks like a legislative achievement because we want to make him so unpopular. In other words, not we're going to do what the country needs, um, but only um, what makes him look bad. That kind of sounds like that's some of the same political thinking there, although, you know, brilliant to have made it public and therefore perhaps to uh, have sort of scuppered that um, strategy. This, my friend, is a little piece of uh, television history, I think. 
This week, uh, reality television, one of the most popular uh, programs in Israel, the program Married at First Sight, had, for the first time, a gay couple getting married. Guy and Matan. I should also point out, I'm being a very patriotic Israeli here, but uh, that uh, the American version of Married at First Sight, now in its 14th season, never had a gay couple getting married. So this is very exciting. I see you're very excited. You love reality television, so I can see that you're very... Well, as you can imagine, I'm a devoted viewer of Marriage of a Sight. Not completely. I have seen seen it a bit. I saw one episode of the Australian edition. I have to say, it did fill me slightly with existential despair for the future of the human race. So I'm not a natural (laughs) viewer for this show, but I do know a progressive step forward when I hear or see one. And so this is interesting to me for the reasons you've just said. I'm guessing if the Americans haven't done it, I would guess that probably nowhere else has done it, but maybe... Um, you know, no, European, Europeans have done it. Uh, the the Dutch version, the Belgian okay. version already had, I think, okay. every season have a gay couple. You guys took a few years into the uh, series to do it. Americans, as I said, never did it. Uh, never we're pretty we're, we're pioneering uh, in that, semi-pioneering in that, in that regard. Look, first of all, we have to say, not only because it's on my channel, had great ratings. The wedding itself had a peak of, I think it was the most watched wedding scene of all of the seasons of uh, Married at uh, First uh, Sight, Chatunami Mabat Rishon in Hebrew. The reason I wanted to discuss this with you is because this is such an interesting paradox in Israel, in uh, the country in which the rabbinate uh, kind of controls weddings and funerals and still parts of the communities like the ultra-Orthodox communities and, and specifically the Arab communities are not very open to this. But on the other hand, Israel is this sort of, you know, you don't have to sell Tel Aviv as being one of the LGBTQ most friendly cities in the world. The Supreme Court with its legislation moving Israel forward. So it's a mixed bag, but it's a very interesting uh, story. And by the way, no uproar in Israel at all. I think that the creators of this series were a bit trepidatious before, but now they just saw that it actually went down quite easily. So th- this is hard for people outside, I think, to understand. And mm-hmm. I'm. Uh, I, it reminds me a little of our conversation a few weeks back about abortion rights, where Israel simultaneously is, look, on one level, a theocracy. You know, the rabbinate do have power over things which are civil in other countries, marriage mm-hmm. and uh, uh, divorce and the like. And yet, in that case, had a much looser, more liberal uh, abortion policy in practice, you explained, than the obviously the United States in that comparison. Here, again, I'm I'm really interested to know how we explain those two things, that on the one hand, the rabbis have a big prominent role. Traditional strict Orthodox Judaism it do- takes a dim view of... It's, it's in the Bible. I think it's in the Bible. It's, you know, homosexuality not uh, permitted under, you know, the sacred texts. And yet, as you say, this went by without an eyebrow raised. How do we explain that? to what to me looks like a disconnect. Well, I'm not sure it's a disconnect. I think the trajectory in general is is of inclusivity. I mean, on the one hand, again, as as we said, the Supreme Court is very forward-thinking in LGBTQ rights. Recently, uh, in a landmark decision, lift uh, surrogacy restrictions for the gay community. No issues about in Israel about being openly gay in the military or, or in parliament in any way. You will never see a don't say gay law in this country. And you even have, Jonathan, this is very interesting, more and more openly religious gay Israelis, which I, I think a decade or more ago would seem like either you're, you leave religion or you live a lie. And this is becoming something uh, a very, very uh, interesting 
Um, I think specifically Yair Ettinger, who's a very talented journalist, is writing about this uh, in his book that will come in, out in English about the religious Zionist community and, among other things, their relationship to this. Now, on the other hand, we need to say this, right? As we say, the chief rabbinate does control weddings. There aren't civil uh, marriages in this country for gay couples or for uh, heterosexual couples. You have incidences. You did have two major uh, incidents of, of violence against the gay community. Shira Banki, a teenager, was murdered in 2015 in the Pride Parade in Jerusalem. You had a shooting in a, in a gay community center in Tel Aviv in 2009. There are these uh, stories, uh, but still, I think the general trajectory, because of the courts, because of the general population, is, is moving more and more forward to this issue in the Knesset. You see the ultra-Orthodox members of Knesset talking against it. It always seems to me that the louder you talk, the more you know you're losing. Uh, I think that in that regard, that is, that is what is happening to this society. To be clear, though, same-sex marriages don't happen inside Israel in the same way that civil marriages don't happen. Right, but under law it is recognized. So you have tax issues, inheritance issues, the issue if you have a partner that has a child, you can adopt them. This is this does happen. Again, a lot of the Supreme Court uh, decisions around this, but you don't have same-sex marriages in this country. Again, as you say, like you don't have the civil, civil marriages. Uh, in Israel. So a same-sex couple who want to be married in Israel would have to go abroad to Cyprus yes, or wherever Yes, they can to official, uh, officiate their relationship, but they will have to go. They would have to go uh, abroad. Yeah, but they can have the rights as if they were yes. a married couple. Yep under Israeli law because of those decisions. So I think it was interesting your point about religious, uh, that, and that's obvious we should say, that's because the marriages are done by the rabbinate, they're religious right. marriages. And so since the religious community would not marry two people of the same sex, therefore there are no same-sex marriages inside Israel. Right, but in the same way they wouldn't have issues with someone who, uh, from the aspect of the halacha, will not be Jewish marrying with uh, Jew, if, even if they're a heterosexual couple, you will have a, a issue with the rabbinate. So there's a lot. There are a lot of issues happening there that aren't specifically connected to the uh, LGBTQ community. Yeah. So the the shift, if it may come, would have to come within religion, and so that's why what you say about you see more orthodox gay people or people who are out openly gay and orthodox is really fascinating because from the perspective of Jewish communities. Outside, of course, progressive communities have been, you know, open and inclusive for a long time, reform and uh, liberal Jewish communities. But in the world of the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, I think this is one of those issues that is coming. And yep. my guess is that Israel will be further down this track. Absolutely, it would probably still be the case that if you wanted to live an overtly, strictly Orthodox life and be openly gay, that would be, you'd have to choose. Mm -hmm. It would be one or the other. I think that would probably still be the case. But there are, you know, you feel there are the very beginnings of change there. Yeah. Um, I see it, you know, in the next generation where the idea that that is a choice um, is sort of rejected. And, you know, I know people in my own generation where I think there was uh, quite a well-known case of somebody who was, gay and orthodox and came out and then immediately it was sort of a did then move into a reform congregation as if that was obvious you'd have to do that mm. and i now see in the next generation orthodox jewish gay people challenging that and saying no i don't have to say one or the other i want to be both right that's one to watch and whether israel leads that or follows that is going to be Really interesting. But yeah, I think that's an anomaly that right there that we've talked about, which is on the one hand, socially, liberally, culturally, 
it's at the point where you can have a same-sex couple getting maximum ratings for being married on uh, TV and then at the same time legally they can't marry. So how did you get around that? I say oh, by the way, no one on network. the show gets married legally. We should say that. I think in the American show they do, like officially get ah, married. But in this, so how do they get married on the Israeli show? It's not really married. I'm just it's it's married for television, to be honest, because ah. there's not a rabbi officiating it. It's more of a, a rabbi type looking person. <laughs> and you do have the glass, like the breaking of the glass and a Jewish wedding and the chuppah. So it's kind of a made for television. Nobody gets really, really gets married because then they have to go through the rabbinate and then they have to go get a divorce if they separate. So it's a, yeah, made for television. It may surprise you to hear that actually I have more sympathy for that approach than I did for my 40 minutes watching Married at First Heart Australia. Because I am so old-fashioned, I discovered, that that's what I didn't like about it. I didn't like the fact so that they debased real marriage. Uh, you know, I'm now like, sounding like someone from the 15th or 16th century, <laughs> I know. But I thought marriage is quite special, and you don't just do it for, on TV for the first person you've met. Now I think I convinced you to actually watch the Israeli version of it. The Israeli version I can make my peace with. It's the other ones that I've got a problem with. So yet again, I feel we're making great progress here today. Um, you know, we're resolving a lot of issues. I think, I think so. You know, so world peace, what's next? What's next on our agenda? Are we yeah, doing world, you forget world the, peace? the coalition that's unraveling. They should just put us two in charge. I feel that, um, yeah, we've achieved a lot is how I would want to put it. <laughs> um, we should probably round off our, this uh, sterling achievement mm -hmm. with um, with some awards. Yes, and you go first, I think. No, I've been talking too much. There was a lot of competition for our Mensch Award this week. I did want to give an honourable mention uh, to Yariv Mozer, movie director, Israeli documentary maker. Uh, he has unearthed tapes of Adolf Eichmann, architect of the Nazi Final Solution, essentially confessing to his role in the uh, murder of six million Jews, which sharply contradicts what Eichmann said on the stand in his trial in Israel in 1961. Uh, these tapes are hugely revealing. They're going to be heard in this new documentary. And so a Mensch Award to the director, uh, Yariv Moser, for finding those. But uh, I, I think we go back in some ways to our opening uh, story, which is this horrific shooting in Texas that left 19 schoolchildren and two of their teachers. One of the statements, and there have been many, that came out was from Steve Kerr, who is an NBA basketball coach, who just really let it all out with this plea that went viral urging politicians to do something, just do something, to deal with the gun problem. In the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California. And now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm, I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to, to the devastated families that are out there. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. We can't get numb to this. We are being held hostage by 50 senators in Washington who refuse to even put it to a vote. They won't vote on it because they want to hold on to their own power. It's pathetic. I've had enough. And it had extra weight partly because, you know, football coaches and basketball coaches, sports coaches, off huge authority figures, as you know, in the United States. People really do listen to them. But he also, uh, Steve Kerr, came at this with great sort of personal knowledge because in 1984, when he was just 18 years old, his own father 
was assassinated by Islamic Jihad because his father was the president of the American University of Beirut and his father Malcolm Kerr was a big expert on the Arab world. So um, Steve Kerr lost his father to gun violence. His father was shot twice in the head outside his office when he was just 52 years old. So when Steve Kerr talks about this, even besides his place in sporting culture and national life, He's, he comes at this with great sort of emotional and moral authority. And the speech, it's worth finding if you if you haven't heard it. It's just, you know, very powerful, went viral and deserved to have done. And it deserved to have got people's attention. Yeah. And just to think about, I think we made that point when we talked about um, gun violence, right? That there's a difference between an external threat and terrorism and an enemy coming from within. And it's a different thing uh, to deal with. Shall I lighten our mood a little bit with our chutzpah work? Do Yes, um, please. It's, it's a friendly chutzpah award, right? It's not a nasty chutzpah award. But uh, we uh, mentioned this show uh, before on our uh, on our podcast, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I think I uh, watched it more than you did, Jonathan, but that's fine. Uh, and, did I? Because uh, I gave up, I think, after the first season. Did you do more than that? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Know, yeah. Okay. So it's, you, to uh, any of our listeners who haven't seen it, it's, um, Midge Maisel is a... Um, a, a housewife turned stand-up comedian in the '60s. It's uh, it's funny and it's it's a sweet show and it's of course very very Jewish. And now uh, a story came out that they are filming an Israeli scene looking for quote Jewish types. Now, first of all, they are filming a scene in a kibbutz which will be Long Island, which I have some things to say about that. Um, but they are <laughs> but they're looking again for uh, Jewish types. I hope I just hope that they're gonna do the scene where they run into the 19-year-old Bernie Sanders on a kibbutz. That, I think, could be very cool. But we uh, mentioned this whole story when we discussed the issue of uh, Jew face and casting non-Jews in Jewish roles. By the way, Rachel Brosnahan, who's the uh, lead, and I think a very good lead in this series, uh, is not Jewish, which has been mentioned a few times in this discussion. So I think the fact that they are looking for Jewish types is, uh, is interesting in itself. Yeah, That's- I'd love to see them define yeah. Jewish types. <laughs> Uh, they would have trouble with that, I think. Um, did we want Creator to give a little shout-out? Creator of the show, by the way, out? I think is also Jewish. Amy Sherman, who also created, Amy Sherman Palladino also created uh, the wonderful Gilmore Girls. So, just saying. Yeah. I, I mean, I like Rachel Brosnan in it as well. I, although I couldn't help but think, this surely this wouldn't have been a hard role to cast with a Jewish actor. I, I, mean, did, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I did not think of her not being Jewish at all until you mentioned it. On oh, the really? Podcast. Yes. Oh, really? She's Whereas a great me, actress. Just... She does this great role. I, I don't know. I was never bothered by... But it screamed <laughs> non-Jew to me. Um, but did we want to give a little affectionate mention to Davos and the World Economic Forum, do you think? What, the fact that they, everyone flew in their private jets and wrote uh, that they're d- dealing with climate uh, change? Yes. I think yeah, I just bit. loved the wording. I loved the wording. I think it was a tweet and they just said... Super excited or, you know, excited that as the delegates to our Davos gathering fly in, we're about to talk about climate change. And it's just, you thought, just don't say fly in, just say arrive. Then no one will give you a hard time. But Davos delegates are flying in, as you say, often on private jets. uh, And we're super excited to be talking about the oncoming climate crisis, the ongoing. They didn't say they were going to solve it. They just said they were going to talk about it. I don't see the problem. Yeah, no, if they wanted to solve it, they would have left it to you and me on an edition of Unholy because we are just barreling the, through the Jewish the problem problems. solvers. I think we should change our tutor history and problem solving is our is our expertise. I think that's nice. Yeah, it really is. That's good. Bear in mind, probably by the time people hear it, tutor history will be quite literally history. We will be <laughs> on to something else 
It could be Othello. It could be the Great Gatsby. Oh, wow. Um, we have stuff to talk. Great Gatsby, we can do. Okay, we have stuff to yeah. talk about, my friend. We so Unholy can set up itself Just as a tangentially connected clinic. to our main topic. We'll say our thank yous to Rom Atik and Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat and Irad Escher for original music. We will. And of course, if you've enjoyed our solving of the world's problems, you must rate us, follow us, spread the love. We are very grateful when you do that. And we'll meet next week, Jonathan. See you then, Yoni. See you.